how thankful I am to see all of you here uh, joining to fellowship, to worship, to uh, learn, to speak, and talk with each other. Uh, it's been a while since we've had a Founders Conference, a National Founders Conference, and uh, we're very encouraged that you have come, and we pray that God will bless it. Now, open your Bible, please, to the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 3. 2 Timothy, chapter 3. And we're looking to sola scriptura and <clears throat> social justice theory. And so I wanted us to come to this passage. It keeps coming to my mind. I've been tried to turn to other passages, and I keep coming back to this one. Uh, because it is certainly one of the uh, major texts on sola scriptura, scripture alone. So let's begin reading. Um, as Paul speaks to Timothy in chapter 3, verse 14, and I would like us to read uh, until uh, chapter 4, verse 8. So let's hear the word of God together. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation <clears throat> through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am ready, already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. How wondrous is verses, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, as we read them again. We'll be looking at those verses uh, in this message it's full of amazing statements and abundant promises that are meant to encourage Timothy to keep preaching what Paul preached after Paul dies in 68 AD. 
And therefore, I believe this uh, epistle was written somewhere around 67, uh, perhaps as late as 68 A.D. In the last days, in his Roman jail, awaiting decapitation, Paul exhorts Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. And why preach the Word? Because he previously charged Timothy to stay in the Scriptures for all of his life and labors. 2 Timothy 3.16 again. All Scripture is inspired or God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine. Not just the act of teaching, but the formation of doctrine for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness or discipline in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So what I want to do this afternoon is first begin with a brief exposition of the text by the biblical hermeneutics that we use today in the grammatical, historical, and theological method. So first, let me expound these two verses. I'll try to follow the Reformers' hermeneutic that our Baptist forefathers adopted themselves and followed at least up until uh, the end of the 18th century. So we must look back in order to look forward. Paul is speaking to Timothy as a pastor. He's speaking of the Old Testament Scriptures when he says the writings, that all Scripture is God-breathed, but not just the Old Testament. He's also including, I believe, and William Hendrickson agrees in his um, commentary, that he's including the New Testament Scriptures, for by this date, the Synoptic Gospels had been written. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And not only those writings, but also the writings of Paul himself and the writings of John and Peter. Uh, There is good reason to believe that all the books of the New Testament were written before the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, simply because it is nowhere mentioned. And the Gospel of John perhaps was written later on after that. But nevertheless, all the Scriptures are God-breathed. And He includes what He wrote. When we look back to John 14.26, Jesus gave a promise to the apostles before He was taken. He said in verse 26, But the Helper... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things. In other words, the apostles had more yet to learn than even what Christ Himself had taught them. And He will bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. One of the liberal theologians that I encountered in a meeting at Southwestern Seminary years ago said, I believe that John wrote the Gospel of John. But who can trust the memory of an old man? And here we have the promise of our Lord. 
that He would bring to their remembrance all that He said so that when we look upon the apostolic writings, we're looking upon a wonder, a miracle. More things that our Lord taught them after His ascension into heaven. And not only that, the power of the Holy Spirit to bring remembrance to them of what our Lord taught so that they could accurately teach His Word, His theology, His doctrine, His practice, His salvation, His holiness, His church. And so we have in these apostolic writings the Scriptures. And Paul was self-conscious about that because in 1, Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians 2.13 he said to them, For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the Word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but for what it really was, the Word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Paul was self-conscious as an apostle that when he wrote and preached the Word of God, that he was speaking out the breath of God, the very words of God to the people's ears for their salvation. So Timothy was to teach and preach all the God-breathed Scriptures themselves with the authority of God behind every word of the human writers. He was to preach all the Scriptures because all were profitable to teach. That's what he says. All Scriptures are God-breathed and profitable. That means that they are the Word of God and the Old Testament and the writings of the New Testament still are profitable to teach. He was to preach the unity and the one sense of Scripture because it is all inspired by that same divine mind and spirit behind them. He was to preach the verbal, plenary, inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative Old Testament and New Testament as the very Word of God. He was to preach the whole Bible, that is, the whole counsel of God. From eternity past to eternity future. He was to preach the covenants of God. The redemptive covenant before the world began. The covenant of works given to Adam which he broke. And brought the consequences of sin upon us. He was to preach the covenant of grace promised in Christ in Genesis 3.15. And, and revealed gradually and progressively through the Old Testament till he was born in Bethlehem in fulfillment of the many and precious promises. For the Scripture is one because it reveals the mind of God infallibly. But when we look at 2 Timothy 4 as we read, we see that there were those professing Christians in the churches who were forsaking sound doctrine. And when it says they were forsaking sound doctrine, looking to have their ears tickled, it means that they were looking for teachers who would teach them according to their own desires, instead of looking first and always to the unchanging truth of the Word of God, to reprove and correct their erroneous desires and feelings. In other words, the desires had become the first authority of their hermeneutical method. 
to interpret the Bible instead of submitting their thinking and desires to the authority and sufficiency of the Word of God alone. And then following the priority of their own desires, they sought teachers who would teach the Scriptures which seemed to support their desires. What is wrong with this picture? Second, this leads us to the comprehensive nature of this God-breathed record of God's words to men. Being God's authoritative word, it is also sufficient and profitable for forming sound doctrine, for reproving men for sin, for correction to a holy life, for training in righteousness to make a pastor like Timothy and every Christian complete and equipped for every good work. In other words, Scripture is so comprehensive and sufficient that it teaches the doctrine necessary to determine what is a good work in God's will. In fact, what is every good work? So in our zeal to do good to all men, especially to those of the household of faith, we must not allow our zealous desires and feelings to be the first foundation of our hermeneutical approach to Scripture. That is making ourselves the final authority for how to interpret the Bible. And this is what Adam and Eve did in the garden. They let their desires, though tempted by Satan, overrule God's verbal authoritative words. They went beyond God's revelation. And sought authority within themselves. Such hermeneutics will lead each man to do what is right in his own eyes instead of in God's eyes as revealed in the Holy Scripture alone. It is this man-centered hermeneutic that can only produce chaos as it did in the garden, in the book of Judges, and in the gospel accounts. Therefore, the inspiration and sufficiency of Scripture must be rigorously held to as first in hermeneutical priority in order that our desires and feelings may be purified, sifted, reproved, corrected, and disciplined by the text of Scripture alone. If we cannot agree to this hermeneutic, which is the historical reformed hermeneutic and our Baptist forefathers hermeneutic, then we cannot even talk productively about social justice issues and the Bible. This truth was our forefathers' understanding of the sufficiency of Scripture alone in all matters of faith and practice. And it says, obedience. That which we do in obedience to God in our, in our lives. Paragraph 1 of chapter 1 of Our Confession of Faith, the Second London Confession, says, The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, that's the first word that is used to describe the Bible. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Although the light of nature and works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God, so as to leave men inexcusable, yet they are not sufficient. There's the word again. 
to give that knowledge of God and His will, which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal Himself and to declare that His will unto His church. And afterward, for the better preserving and propagating of the truth, and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world, to commit the same holy unto writing which maketh the Holy Scriptures to be most necessary. Those former ways of God's revealing His will unto His people now being ceased. And so our forefathers believed there are no new prophets or prophecies. There are no new revelations that have come in some way for us for the present day. That the Scriptures alone are the divine revelation of God to man for every age and every culture and every person. And as a result, we must look to the sufficiency of Scripture and agree on its very foundation, its very truth, before we can open the Bible and begin to talk. Because the Bible itself defines itself as sufficient. And it also defines its own hermeneutics by which to interpret it. And if we do not believe that, which is the Reformed, uh, the Reformation and our Baptist forefathers' um, presuppositions and their own hermeneutics, again, we'll be crossing barriers. We'll not be able to cross the barriers in our communication about the issues of what is sin? What is the gospel? What is the church? What is the mission of the church? What is holiness? What is justice? Further, the teaching of Paul is that Scripture is not only comprehensive and sufficient, but also that it is enough and perspicuous enough, that is clear enough, for the man and woman of God to understand the Scriptures, from the Scriptures, what is meant by every good work for them, without having to submit to the words of a Ph.D. in order to understand the Bible. It was given to the people. It was meant to be preached to the people. And only the Holy Spirit can properly open the heart to understand the things of God. We know that in our evangelism, but it's also true in our sanctification. That it is not about the level of learning, it is the level of humility. And the willing heart to submit its mind, emotions, and will to the mind of our God who sent His Son to the cross on our behalf. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And that word is used in the betrayal of Peter. Let him betray himself. Let him take up the cross daily and follow me. Follow my words. Follow my teachings. So the doctrine of what is a good work was at a major issue for the reformers in order to counter the unbiblical penances and works righteousness salvation 
placed upon the people by the Roman church. And Luther's treatise on good works examined the Bible's teaching on what is a good work. And he expounded the moral law of God and the commands of Christ and the apostles to define what is and what is not a biblical good work for the consciences of Christians. And our confession follows the same definition in chapter 16, verse 1. Good works are only such as God hath commanded in His holy word, and not such as were without warrant thereof, are devised by men out of blind zeal or upon any pretense of good intentions. There is already a doctrine of good works in the Bible. And our forefathers understood it. And therefore they lived according to it. If we do not start with the Scripture and its sufficiency in order to explain what is and what is not a good work, we can never come to unity, but only further division among us. So 2 Timothy 3.16-17 is Paul's meaning when he exhorts Timothy to preach the Word, to, to teach sound doctrine in accordance with the Old Testament and the New Testament, words of Jesus and His apostles. In other words, Paul explains that the Scriptures are God's inspired and sufficient Word in all matters of saving knowledge, faith, and obedience, which includes the definition of good works. So this sufficiency of Scripture marked the separation of the Reformers from the Roman Church, which advocated the authority of Scripture themselves, but plus their tradition as the inspired Word of God. So breaking free from the bondage of the Roman Church's uninspired traditions, Luther and Calvin held fast to the sufficient Word of God alone, which is called sola scriptura, as the formal principle of the Reformation. However, we're in danger of losing that very doctrine today. Having fought for the inerrancy of Scripture, we have failed to pursue the sufficiency of Scripture, especially in the Scripture's sufficiency to, divine, to, to define its own hermeneutics for interpretation. The Scripture cannot be broken, our Lord said. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable, sufficient for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete. Not just equipped, but complete for every good work. The erroneous hermeneutics and faulty exegesis that is coming from, at least in some quarters, perhaps many quarters, from the social justice movement, are endangering the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture in all matters of faith and practice. It's causing division between brethren that profess Christ because erroneous hermeneutics, leaving the biblically derived grammatical, historical, theological hermeneutics, have created erroneous doctrine and application. 
This is at the root of the hermeneutics of the modern repeat of the old social justice theology of 1900 and the 1950s and 60s. It is the very same hermeneutic. And it's drawing near to the same applications and consequences. But second, we have to consider the sufficiency of Scripture in the hermeneutics of the social justice movement. So first of all, again, biblical hermeneutics. The sufficiency of Scripture does not mean that every possible question of the Christian life, holiness, the work of the church, good works, etc., can be found chapter and verse in the Bible. The sufficient Scriptures have taught themselves that there's liberty. There's liberty to decide on a personal level the issues of foods. And that would include purchasing a car, or what color it is, or church architecture, or the circumstances of worship like lights and air conditioning, but not the elements of worship. It has the final authority in all the issues of life. And it means that Scripture alone has final authority in every area of which it speaks. Even Christian liberty. And it has spoken clearly about the issues of social justice. In the process of affirming the inspiration, authority, and sufficiency of Holy Scripture, Paul explains, as I've said, that Scripture is his own best interpreter. Scripture interpreting Scripture. But even beyond that, the analogy of faith. That is, the whole counsel of God as a whole interpreting each text. This is not always understood by evangelical uh, believers. That the Reformation and our Baptist forefathers believed not only in a grammatical historical interpretation of the Bible but a theological interpretation of the Bible, as we discover and learn the whole counsel of God, it has influence to enable us to interpret any particular text or doctrine. And I believe that is what is missing many times in the preparation for the gospel ministry. Sound hermeneutics and sound theology that we may properly interpret the Bible by the Bible's own standards. Although the historical critical method has failed and passed away from the 17, 1800s and the first half of the 20th century, many similar proposals surround us today about how to interpret the Bible. Believing that the grammatical, historical, theological method of the Reformers comes from the Scripture... And therefore, the Scripture interprets itself. We follow this biblically defined hermeneutic with the authority of Scripture behind it. Some would call this circular reasoning. Where you're saying the Bible gives you the principles of interpretation to interpret the Bible. So how can you really be objective outside of the Bible in your interpretation, in your hermeneutics? And the answer of the Bible is, all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for sound doctrine, that the man of God may be complete, equipped 
for every good work. Extra biblical principles of interpretation based upon human reason and even existentialism has no place in the doctrine or practice of biblical interpretation. The social justice hermeneutics, however, at least as I have read and seen practice quite often, over the last 150 years, others have gone outside the Scripture and its self-defining hermeneutics to propose source criticism, form criticism, structuralism, literary analysis, and various forms of reader response criticism as the proper hermeneutical method for getting at the real meaning of Scripture with authority. All have failed to recognize the supreme authority of the sufficient Scripture to interpret itself. In reader response criticism as an aside, it lays aside the biblical and historical principles of hermeneutics, or can, to ultimately ask the question, how do you feel when you read the story of Scripture? And that becomes the final authority for the interpretation of the Bible for one's life, faith, and obedience. And this is simply the old old liberalism and its further development in the liberation theology adopted as a hermeneutic. And that is in that is influencing greatly the social justice applications which go far beyond what is necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture. And in so doing, they've rejected the sufficiency of Scripture or Scripture alone to define their principles of interpretation. Authors William Klein, Craig Blomberg, and Robert Hubbard Jr. in a a book uh, written to keep us up to date called The Introduction to Biblical Interpretation, have exposed the departure of old liberalism and liberation theology and its influence upon certain social justice interpreters to develop a hermeneutic that is undermining the sufficiency of Scripture alone to interpret itself. And I quote, Liberation theology has developed a three-part hermeneutical agenda. In opposition to the stated objectives of many forms of classical theology, experience takes precedence over theory. That means experience, your experience takes precedence over the scripture and developing its theology. And the dominant experience of a majority of people in the third world in which liberation theology was born is the experience of poverty, suffering, malnutrition, lack of access to basic human rights, education, clean water, medicine, and the like. Hence, a liberation hermeneutic begins with the experience of the injustice of poverty. Second, It attempts to analyze or access the reasons for the impoverished existence. What has contributed to bring it about? 
And third, actions take precedence over rhetoric. <coughs> Trying to find where I was. <laughs> actions take precedence over rhetoric. Liberationists, they say, seek to determine a course of corrective measures on the basis of their previous observation, insight, and judgment. In the liberationist hermeneutic, the Bible does not normally come into play at the beginning in step one, but only to aid in steps two and three, particularly by focusing on the biblical narratives of liberation from oppression with the Exodus as the Old Testament paradigm, and a social-political understanding of God's kingdom in the New Testament paradigm, which is in error, the liberationist takes heart from his or her conviction that God has a preferential option for the poor. God sides with the oppressed against their oppressors and calls believers today to do the same in working for a more humane society on earth. Now, as the authors assert, Liberation hermeneutics do not begin or end with the scripture alone to form their understanding of the gospel, the definition of salvation and obedience, the mission of the church, the responsibility of the Christian and the church to address social injustices, and the question of reparations from one class to another. Still following extra-biblical source and form criticism, though they may not be aware that they are doing that. They have interpreted the biblical concept of the regenerate kingdom of God, which is our Baptist belief, a regenerate kingdom, and it's already not yet administration under the new covenant. They have reinterpreted the kingdom of God as a world kingdom, with God as our Father and all men as brothers, which demands justice for all who perceive themselves as unfair victims. Christ is more and more reduced in the discussion. This old liberal fatherhood of God and brotherhood of man, without the covenantal distinctions of the old covenant kingdom and the new covenant kingdom, loosely makes the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man the new gospel which requires social justice theories to bring in the kingdom of God on earth. Again, this is simply the old theology desires and feelings of victimization that have been used before to create a new hermeneutic and now is again being used to ignore the priority of the sufficiency of Scripture in every question that is asked. What is the gospel? What is sin? What is obedience? What is the church? What is the mission of the church? What is justice? And I might add to that that the turning away from the Ten Commandments as the moral law of God, which in Jeremiah 31 is written upon our hearts, the law which God wrote on tablets of stone, has created a well-meaning attempt of evangelical believers in the 20th and now 21st century to seek good works for the glory of God without the guidance of His moral law and the commandments 
of Jesus. So that to the law and to the commandments is looked down upon as legalism when it is simply obedience to a God of grace who has changed our hearts to love Him and that which He loves. If we do not turn away from the contemporary incursion of old liberalism, old liberal hermeneutics, while considering the issues of social justice, we will gradually end up the way it has twice before in the last 150 years. Without Christ, without personal holiness, without an evangelistic church. There are four four things I want to describe that the results of that old old liberal hermeneutics. It is full of self-righteous condescension to those who do not agree. It refuses to accept certain scriptures as authoritative for ethnic unity in the church or gender understanding based upon the forgiveness in Christ for past offenses. Three, it rejects God's authority to define gender roles in marriage and the church. And four, many other now unforeseen errors which will end up in hardened positions and division generated by those who have rejected biblical hermeneutics that the Bible is sufficient, the Bible alone Will, enable, will, will not enable us to ironically discuss biblical texts with humble hearts that are willing to reform their desires or feelings not approved by the sufficient scriptures. Again, we will not be able to have an ironic, humble discussion where we are both quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of God does not accomplish the righteousness of God. The anger of man does not establish the righteousness of God. So may God enable us all to step back and return to the hermeneutics which brought us to justification by faith alone, the pursuit of holiness by a justified believer according to the commands of God And a new unity which returns to the sufficiency of Scripture as the first point of discussion between brothers in our hermeneutics and discussion over the issues of social justice. Now, quickly, I want to do something in application because the real, right now, one of the real discussions is how do you apply the Scriptures? Well, if you don't have the right hermeneutics, your applications will always be wrong. But let me give some examples. The applications of the social justice movement may include racial, gender, generational, social, sexual, and economic intersectionalism for the purpose of righting wrongs by the oppressor against the oppressed. The more one intersects with various categories, the more one conceives oneself a victim which needs reparative justice. 
This may include monetary reparations from one race to another, one gender to another, one economic class to another, even one institution to an ethnic or gender group. Reparations also may include public statements of repentance for generational sins, although the penitent may never have participated in or agreed with those sins. So these applications, are these applications biblically based on biblical hermeneutics and authority as defined by the Holy Scripture, as necessarily contained in Holy Scripture? And the example I would like to use this, this uh, uh, morning or afternoon is that of Zacchaeus. But first, we need to understand a, a, a very important hermeneutical issue. The Westminster Confession of Faith says, The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory, this is uh, paragraph 6, for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. So that a good and necessary consequence carries the authority of Scripture. So if reason from Scripture is good and necessary... It is as authoritative as the Bible itself. And in adopting good and necessary consequence, our, our beloved friends and brothers in the Pedobaptist camp have invented the doctrine of infant baptism. No offense to anyone here. We are brothers in the Lord. Okay? But notice what Baptists did. Chapter 1, paragraph 6. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down, that's in agreement, same words as the Westminster Confession, or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture, under which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. Now, what is the difference? Our Baptist forefathers recognized that some inferences from the Scripture may seem good to reason and to one's experience, but are not necessary to conclude with the authority of Scripture. Just because something may be a good inference does not mean it reaches the level of necessity according to the Word of God. Our Baptist forefathers tightened down reason and inference that may seem good at first, but is not necessarily contained in Holy Scripture. In other words, reason and application from the Scripture to form doctrine or practice must be necessarily contained in the Holy Scriptures before you begin to press your inferences upon the conscience of another Christian. Take Zacchaeus. Luke 19, 18. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. This is claimed to be the responsibility of every Christian 
and every Christian church to give back or to repay damage that has been done in the past. But the problem with that position is that the Old Testament concept of reparations and restitution was when a person sinned against another person and caused property damage in some way or broke a covenant vow and with the result that there must be reparations or restitution made to that one individual against whom one has actually sinned against. That is not the concept of reparations being bandied about today. In fact, in Numbers 5, 6, and 7, God said, speak to the sons of Israel. When a man or woman commits any of the sins of mankind acting unfaithfully against the Lord, and that person is guilty, then he shall confess his sins which he's committed, and he shall make restitution in full for his wrong, and add to it one-fifth of it, and give it to him whom he has wronged. To extrapolate that into nations and cultures, and particularly ethnic or even non-ethnic groups, is going far beyond that which is necessarily contained in Holy Scripture. And in fact, Zacchaeus' return uh, fourfold, all that he had taken, was based, I believe, upon David responding to Nathan's accusation to David about a, a man who took the lamb, the precious lamb of another, and David spouted out, he must be returned fourfold upon it. It must be returned fourfold upon his head. And so Zacchaeus returned fourfold to those whom he had personally sinned against. And his giving half his possessions to the poor is not a law that is to be put upon the conscience of every Christian. It is in a narrative which does not itself have the power of commandment. Plus, it may be as a result of him failing to give alms for many years in order to enrich himself. So what Zacchaeus did to make restitution to individuals against whom he personally sinned and to give half his possessions and so forth was not a demand for reparations from one group to another group against whom no personal sin was involved. This was repentance for personal sins against those persons whom he made, for which he made restitution. So to draw what may seem a good inference from a narrative or a parable and apply it in a way not necessarily contained in the Bible is subjective hermeneutics rather than reformed and evangelical hermeneutics. If we cannot agree on this, we will never come to one mind on the issues concerning social justice. Sola Scriptura calls us to limit our applications to perceived sin by that which is necessarily contained in Holy Scripture rather than creating a hermeneutic that interprets the Bible without its own principles of interpretation. The social justice movement has adopted unbiblically formed hermeneutics to make their case for ethnic, gender, generational, sexual, 
and economic justice to intersectional victims. Instead of beginning with the text of God's Word for doctrine, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, social justice begins forming its theology with experience, felt injustices, injustices, and desires instead of looking first to the text of the sufficient Bible to be transformed by the renewing of their minds, the renewing of their desires. And then it uses old liberal hermeneutics to establish applications from certain texts which are misinterpreted from the misuse of source and form criticism to create reader response hermeneutics to the, as the authority for their applications never necessarily contained in Holy Scripture. This is a denial of the sufficiency of Scripture and until we get on track with that great truth and doctrine, we can never have peace. We can never unify we never come to one mind. If you remember the words of our Lord Jesus Christ in closing, and I'm sorry I did go over, but we started a little late on my, on my time. Tom really talked a long time at first. Our Lord said in verse 31, it says, Jesus therefore was saying to those Jews who had believed Him, if, you abide, remain, continually stay in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. All of us who have found Christ as our Lord and King and Savior have found that to be true, and so it must be true in all matters of faith and practice.